Acts chapter 1, in your Bible, we have an opportunity to begin a new focus today in our study of God's Word. I've been praying, thinking about for some time what we would do after we concluded our series on the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, and just been burdened for a number of reasons to look at the book of Acts in our Bible. The Acts, as it says in the title, the Acts of the Apostles. And the focus today is really more of a summary overview, the early church's witness to Jesus Christ. Uh, As I have studied the book of Acts, taught through the book of Acts, I'm convinced it is a wonderful resource for us in a lot of ways. One of the ways is it really does help us to see the gospel in clear view as the early church proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. It also helps us to see how individuals, and certainly the church as well, but how individuals play a part in the proclamation of the gospel. And uh, sometimes we tend to think in terms of the individuals who were called by God as apostles or Uh, served in some special way, and certainly there are those, but there are also many others within the book of Acts who the Lord names, or even if they are unnamed, you can see that the gospel goes forward not by one person alone, but by the church, by God's people, by all of God's people. And it's been uh, my burden, and I hope it's yours too, that we as a church would live out uh, church life in a consistent way with what a church looked like in the Bible. And so as we look at the book of Acts, I hope that uh, the Lord will teach us and help us to see both by example and also by the gospel message uh, how we are to live as witnesses. I asked you to turn to Acts chapter 1. Of course, Christ has at this point in... Uh, sacred history, we could say the Gospels have been written. Luke has written his Gospel. He's given instruction in what we would call the first of a two-volume series about what Christ came to do and did. And as he rose again, gave instructions to his uh, apostles. There's a sense in which there's an overlap between this chapter, chapter 1, and the end of the Gospel of Luke. You notice in verse 1 that Luke says, The first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. Well, he's going to say some things in verses 9 through 11 about Jesus' ascension, his being taken up into heaven. But it's after he gives a record of some of what was taking place there in Jerusalem, post-resurrection, with the ministry of Christ. You can see in verse 2, it says, Until the day in which he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So Jesus, in his post-resurrection ministry on earth, was still teaching. He was appearing to his disciples. He did so repeatedly over a period of 40 days. And then he gave them a major direction. Verse 4, as he gathered them together, says, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you, have, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus is saying what he had said in John 14 through 16, that the Spirit was coming, that they were to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who would be a paraclete like him, he, would send, he was going to send them another comforter, which means that he himself was, like the Holy Spirit, a comforter, an advocate, one called alongside. But now he's about to go to heaven. And so he directs his disciples to wait, and they have 
a question, verse 6, and he gives them an answer, verse 7. But then in verse 8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And I believe, and I believe many Bible students believe that as you read through the book of Acts, Jesus has just outlined what is going to take place in the book of Acts. The Spirit is going to come and then his disciples were going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And you could read through the book. We started Jerusalem. We're going to end up in the end of the book of Acts in Rome, the capital of the world at the time. And you have Paul there preaching the gospel. And so the book of Acts gives us a record, and if we didn't have it, we wouldn't have an understanding of the link between where we are now and what happened in the Gospels. In other words, if we sort of took out the book of Acts, what would we be missing? Now, we have record of the ascension in the Gospels, but we wouldn't know the details surrounding the day of Pentecost. We wouldn't see the spread of the gospel to the place where it is now. G. Campbell Morgan, in his book called Living Messages of the Books of the Bible, makes several observations about the book of Acts. He says, for one thing, he says, this is the only historical record upon which we can depend as to those events which immediately followed his death and resurrection and ascension. In addition, he says the word church has no full and final explanation in the full four gospel stories. He also says we wouldn't have an introduction to Paul the Apostle. We'd have his letters, but we wouldn't have an explanation of what took place in his life other than his own personal giving of those details. He does so in Galatians, but we wouldn't have a full explanation of what has taken place. And G. Campbell Morgan described the book of Acts as a bridge that takes us from the Gospels to the epistles. It's the bridge that gets us there, that helps us to see. And if you think about it, Galatia, Corinth, Ephesus, Thessalonica, these New Testament letters that we have, those are far distant from Jerusalem. So how did the gospel get there? And of course we know because we see the story here in the book of Acts. And we would say that the reason it got from here in Jerusalem to those places, Galatia being a region, Thessalonica being a city, the gospel going to those places, it came through the witness, not just of an individual, but certainly the apostles led that, but it was the witness of the apostles, it was the witness of Christians who really did exactly what Jesus is saying is going to happen. Look again at verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, witnesses to Jesus, about Jesus, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. Acts tells us how we got there. And it's a wonderful story. I used to uh, teach uh, Christian high school, and I would teach um, sort of a, not a full exposition of the book of Acts, but we would, at one point in the semester, I would ask my students to do a project that basically was writing a newspaper on a chapter in the book of Acts. Take the events of the book of Acts, just take one chapter and formulate headlines. Now, part of the reason uh, I did that is that if you read through the book of Acts, the kinds of things that are happening are headline material. It's not just a way to read through a chapter of the Bible, but it is to say what happens in the book of Acts that would make the news. If you read through excuse me, even the first chapter, you would certainly say that a person being lifted up into the heavens in a cloud would make the news if people saw it, if people were witness to it. 
You would say in the first chapter, if there was a death like the death of Judas, who fell headlong in a field and made a bloody mess, that would make news. If there was a loud sound in a community so that many people heard it and came and there were people speaking in other languages that they'd never heard, and they're preaching the gospel and they're talking about the wonderful works of God, that would make news. A mass conversion of 3,000 people would make the news. Beyond that, you have people who are healed. You have men who are healed who had never walked. You have prison breaks. You have angels. You have earthquakes. You have demon possession. You have city uproars. You have plots to kill the apostles, you have public executions, you have the appearance of Christ from heaven, dreams, visions, a snake bite at the end of the book, if you keep on reading, that didn't do the person any harm, a shipwreck and all the events surrounding that. I mean, if we were just to describe it in those terms, and I didn't say it was a book, you might say, hey, I want to read that book. Well, this is a book in the Bible. It's given to us for our benefit. It's given to us for our edification. The name Acts of the Apostles, I think, is apt. The apostles certainly are acting, but they're not the only ones who are acting. And I want to take a little bit of time to just consider the actors in this book beyond, in verse 8... The witnesses, Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem. And so you'd have to say that if this is how the book unfolds and the witnesses are the focus and they're the way in which the gospel was spread, we want to give attention to them. But I want to first give attention to an actor in the book of Acts, a person who is prominent and that is Christ himself. Jesus is mentioned in the first verse. Luke writes, the first account I composed about all, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So he had begun to do and teach, and what he began to do, his miracles, his works, his teaching, that's what he began to do. But if you read through the book of Acts, you realize that Jesus didn't just ascend to heaven. Jesus continued to act. We, of course, have this chapter that tells us he ascended into heaven, verses 9 through 11. But as Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, they were waiting for the promise of the Father. But we find in Peter's explanation that as the Spirit came... Who sent the Spirit? Turn over to Acts chapter 2. And I want you to notice as Peter concludes his sermon, in Acts chapter 2, he has explained what has taken place. These people who are speaking in other languages, other than the place and the location in which they were born, this is a miracle of God. And Peter, as he explains this, explains that this is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is according to the promise of the prophet Joel from verses 17 and down down through verse 21. But Jesus, who has just done all of these works and miracles, verse 22, rose from the dead in keeping with the scriptures and the prophecy of Psalm chapter 16, if you look at Verses 25 down through verse 28, Peter's quoting from that psalm. And then he says, verse 29, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Okay? Now Peter is fulfilling that function. He's preaching the gospel. He's witnessing to the resurrection of Christ. But look at what he says. Therefore, having been exalted, Jesus, 
to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Why did the Spirit come on the day of Pentecost? Why were they speaking in tongues? Well, we would say the agency of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is involved, but who sent the Holy Spirit? According to Jesus, it was the promise of the Father, but the promise of the Father, according to Peter here, is received by Jesus, and Jesus is the one who pours out the Spirit. So when I say Jesus is still acting, Jesus ascended into heaven, but from heaven he sent the Spirit, and the events of the day of Pentecost were because the head of the church is ruling over his church. He's filling the church with his Spirit. And he's accomplishing his will as the gospel's being preached and people are believing. And people did believe. Look at verse 41. Luke likes to give what we call progress reports throughout the book of Acts. This is one of them. It says, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And so Jesus Christ has acted. Jesus Christ has told his apostles, his disciples, they would be witnesses. They have been. Now he's brought others into his fold as the chief shepherd. And now there are that many witnesses in Jerusalem, beyond the 120 in the first chapter, to now 3,000 more. And it's going to continue. As Peter in chapter 3, take a look over at chapter 3 and look at verse 6, as Peter and John come across this man who had been lame from his mother's womb, Verse 6, it says, Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And that man, Luke, in his details, describes the exact actions. Seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them walking and leaping, praising God. And what's the explanation? The explanation for how this man is healed, it was he, he was healed in the name of Jesus Christ. It was by the power of Jesus Christ that this man was able to walk. And now there's another opportunity to give testimony to the gospel, to give testimony to Jesus. Turn over to chapter 7. And we're not going to be able to look at everything this morning, but look over at chapter 7 as... The gospel progresses as it's proclaimed, as Stephen is giving testimony in Acts chapter 7, and he is speaking to the Sanhedrin, and he rebukes them at the end of his speech. Look at verse 54, Acts chapter 7 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. <clears throat> but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What's unusual about that is usually when we see references to Christ in heaven, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. But here he's standing. And here's someone who's giving testimony to him. And he's standing, I believe, in honor of the one who is honoring him. Stephen is giving testimony to Jesus Christ and the Son of Man, the head of the church, the Lord of the church, the chief shepherd is looking down upon one of his servants who's about to become a martyr, and he's observing what is taking place in his church. He beholds the persecution. And not only does he behold it, because this day Stephen did lose his life, but he opposes it. In fact, he transforms one of the major proponents of the Jewish religion opposing Jesus Christ in the Apostle Paul. Turn over to Acts chapter 9. What is Jesus doing in heaven? Yes, seated at the right hand. But in this case, he comes to Saul, who is still breathing out, as it says in verse 1, threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Look at verse 3, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And as you see that story unfold, it's not just Jesus there on the road to Damascus, but it's the Lord who speaks to Ananias later in the chapter. This is Christ calling the Apostle Paul to his ministry. This is the head of the church calling another apostle to preach the gospel, and especially to the Gentiles. You could look also at chapter 18 and see Christ appearing again to the Apostle Paul, giving him direction to stay in a city, to continue preaching the word of God in a city. And he says, I have many people in this city. So when, when Luke says in the beginning that this is the first account, or the, the first account he wrote of all that Jesus began to do and teach, don't think that Jesus went to heaven and is just sitting there twiddling his thumbs. Jesus is the shepherd, the chief shepherd of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, and he's the Lord of the church, and he sees all of his people. Read Revelation 1 to 3 and see how active he is in the church. He comes to the churches and he says, through a messenger, I know your works. He says... He knew the Laodiceans were neither cold nor hot, but they were lukewarm to the point that he wanted to spit them out of his mouth. He was judging the church. He was directing the church. He's overseeing the church. He's giving directions in the church. Jesus really is and truly the head of the church. Colossians says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He also is head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will, become, will come to have first place in everything. Yes, Jesus continues to be active in the life of his church or churches, you could say. Revelation tells us that. And I think if we apply that to our own circumstance today, Jesus Christ is head over all of his people. If we belong to him, this church belongs to him, he is our head. Is he paying attention to what is taking place in this congregation? Yes. Does he know what's taking place in secret? Yes. Does he see how we're worshiping? Does he see how we're living our lives? Of course he does. You can't hide anything from him. You read through the Revelation letters and you realize how particular his knowledge is. He knows what doctrines are being taught. He knows what failures there are to live out the Christian life. He knows that there are those who are in need of discipline. He knows that there's teaching that needs to be stopped. And so the actor, I think as you look through the book of Acts, that we need to recognize first of all is the one who, yes, he began to do and teach, but now he's continuing. And I also want to consider the Holy Spirit. If you turn back to chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, of course the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, verse 4 and 5, the Spirit is going to come. He has not yet come. There's the promise of His coming, and they're waiting for His coming. And then when He comes, look at that verse again. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit, verse 8, has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses, both in Jerusalem, my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Chapter 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. Sort of like you can imagine a hurricane or a tornado, the sound of that wind, but no actual effects of the wind. Okay, when you, when you read what Luke wrote here, he says there was a noise a sound, the sound 
was made, end of verse two, verse 2, it says, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then you have uh, verse 3, there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. The way that I envision this in terms of the scriptural description is they're each sitting around together as Christ's disciples, uh, praying together, worshiping together, but suddenly as God does this, over every single one of their heads, there's a flame of fire. It's not actually burning, their hair's not on fire, we're not talking about actual, but there's an appearance, there's a sound, and then there's this appearance. And then, verse 4, it says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. The Holy Spirit comes and miraculously working through these people, they start to speak in languages that they had not studied, that they'd not learned before. And if you read through the explanation in verses 5 and following, you see there are people from all around the world who are there and realizing that these Galileans are speaking languages that they'd never learned. And Peter gives the explanation in verse 16. He says, but this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams even on my bond slaves, both men and women. In those days, excuse me, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. And he goes on to explain what's taking place as the spirit comes upon the church. And there's no doubt, if you were witness to that occasion, you would say there's something, there's a work of God going on. Why? It's because the person of the Holy Spirit has come. And he's acting, and he's acting in each individual life for those who had believed in Jesus. And what are they doing as they speak? I think it's important to recognize what the people said of what these people were speaking. Look back at verse 11 for a moment. As the people were listening, speaking these other languages, verse 11 says, Cretans and Arabs, after mentioning a whole bunch of other places, locations where people were from, where there were different languages spoken, it says, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Now, we don't have any more explanation than that, but when Peter gets up to explain it, he explains it in terms of Jesus is the one who sent the Spirit to give these disciples the ability to testify in all these different languages. So what is the Spirit doing? The Spirit is empowering these people to give witness to people from all sorts of different places, Jews, but they're from all sorts of different places. He's giving them a knowledge of the wonderful works of God, and then they're there, and they get a chance to hear the gospel from the apostle Peter. And of course, Peter is one among them who is filled with the Spirit and empowered for witness. How do you think 3,000 people came to Christ that day? It wasn't through the persuasiveness of Peter's speaking, although certainly he was persuasive. It was through the power of the Spirit working through these witnesses. And you could say as you read through the book of Acts, that's what the Spirit is doing for God's people. And it is what the Spirit does still today. God's Spirit still empowers God's people for witness. That's one of the reasons that God has given the Holy Spirit. Think about that. Think about your service to Christ and think about the fact that he has given you his spirit to empower you for witness. What is taking place in your life? Is there from your life and mine, if we say that we believe in Jesus Christ and we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, is there from your life and mine a witness going forth? I'm not asking about speaking in tongues. I'm talking about telling others the gospel, evangelizing, giving the good news. 
That's why the Holy Spirit is there. Is he there to comfort us, to come alongside us, to help us, to, to help us to confess our sins to God, to put aside sin, to turn away from sin? Yes, he does all those things too. But when Jesus announced the coming of the Spirit and the Spirit's coming to the church, the major purpose was to empower them to proclaim the gospel to the world. And that hasn't changed. But how many times do we just sit silent? How many times do we ignore opportunities to evangelize? How many times are we not even thinking the least about telling someone else about Christ? Do you tell people about Jesus? Do you proclaim him to others? You'd have to say, if God has given you his spirit to empower you for witness and you're not doing that, you're really wasting, wasting the resource that God has given you. I say resource. He's a person. He's there to empower you. The spirit is there. He's not only there to empower, he's also there to direct. Turn over to Acts chapter 9. Excuse me, chapter 8. If you look at the end of this chapter, Philip, who is a deacon in the early church, has the opportunity directed by the Lord to go to a place that seems unlikely for evangelism. Verse 26, it says, An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. Not exactly a place where you would expect, although it's a road, but not expect to encounter a lot of people. But verse 27 says, So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then, and we don't know exactly the nature of this, if it was an audible voice, just a voice in his head, but it says in verse 29, Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he does not open his mouth, in humiliation his judgment was taken away, who will relate his generation, for his life is removed from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me, of whom does this prophet say this, of himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. So it was the Spirit who directed him to go up to the chariot to begin speaking. It was the Spirit, of course, who inspired that scripture. And then as he gives uh, a little bit of what he's reading, the Ethiopian does, then Philip has the opportunity to begin giving a witness to Jesus, to who Jesus is. God's Spirit directed him. That man became a believer. But look down at verse 39. After this man is baptized in testimony to his faith. It says, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself as, as at, Azot, at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. I mean, talk about action. An actor, this is the Holy Spirit, not only directing preaching towards one specific probably influential person, I mean, definitely based on the description, he's a, 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 an official within uh, that uh, queen's administration there in Ethiopia. So for him to go back, many people believe that this is one of the, the, the first uh, people to come to Ethiopia with the news of Jesus as the Christ. Who directed Philip to this person? It was the Spirit. And then the Spirit takes him and it just says Philip finds himself somewhere else. But when he finds himself somewhere else, what's he doing? He's preaching. He's proclaiming the good news. He's, he's got another place to preach. He's got another place to give the gospel. 
Turn over, if you would, to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. The Holy Spirit empowering the church for witness, directing the church's witness in the case of individuals. In the case of Philip in that latter part of the chapter, it was areas in which he preached the gospel. But look at Acts chapter 16. This is after Paul has been converted. Timothy has also joined him or is joining him. Luke is with him as well. You really can't see Luke uh, in terms of his explanation of him. So he doesn't identify himself by name, but you can tell Luke is present when you see the word we in this book. Uh, for instance, in verse 10, it says, When he, speaking of Paul, had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia. The writer of this narrative has suddenly entered into the narrative, and the only way he tells you is that we, we did this. But what's he telling us about here? Paul, in the first part of this chapter, picks up Timothy. As they pass through cities and encouraging churches, God is working. But verse 6 says, They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. I say the Holy Spirit is directing. Direction and guidance sometimes means, no, don't go there. We don't always know why the word says what it does, but according to that verse, it says the Holy Spirit forbid them to speak the word in Asia. Whether it was timing, we know the gospel needs to go to the world, or whatever the reason, God's Spirit is the Holy Spirit. He's one of the persons of the Trinity. He is God. And so giving direction here, he does not allow them to speak the word in Asia. Verse 7, and after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Why is he the Spirit of Jesus? Not because this is Jesus' Spirit, but it is the Spirit who proclaims and testifies to Jesus, and of course is one God with Jesus. He's one of the persons of the Trinity. But the Spirit did not permit them to go into that place either. Verse 8, it says, In passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Verse 9, A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The Spirit is giving direction. And in God's providence... Paul is getting direction, Luke is there with him, Timothy's getting direction. We know if we read through the, the account of Peter and his interaction with Cornelius, the Holy Spirit is involved in leading his people very specifically. And that hasn't changed either. He's empowering God's people for witness. He is directing them in witness. I'm not saying that we're going to have the same kind of vision of the man from Macedonia. But God's Spirit, if He's working in and among us, is going to direct us to evangelize. So if you think about the actors in the book of Acts, we'd have to say God, of course, who's the author of Scripture, who is working all things after the counsel of His own will, who is the one who brought the church into existence, of course He's acting. Jesus Christ is acting, even from heaven. At times appearing, the Spirit is now present on earth and acting. And the last, and I think it's obvious as we read through the book, is the church. Led by the apostles, the church is acting. God is not doing things apart from the church. He's doing things through the church. Peter and Paul, among the individuals that are mentioned in the book of Acts, are the most prominent. You can see through the book... The first part of the book focuses on Jerusalem and the, the apostles as they minister there, but then there's sort of an overlapping transition as the book continues and the focus eventually becomes the apostle Paul and his missionary journeys. But in addition to Peter and Paul, there are the other apostles who are giving testimony. They're giving their witness. 
they are teaching. If you turn back to Acts chapter 2, after those souls are saved on the day of Pentecost, what's taking place? The very next verse, verse 42, 3,000 souls are saved. Verse 42, it says that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles, plural, teaching, and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And it's Peter who is often the spokesperson, sometimes the preacher in the scene, but the rest of the apostles were active as well. Turn over to chapter 4. And look at verse 32. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles, plural, were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. And so it's the apostles who are preaching. Again, Peter is in view in chapter 5, but the apostles are preaching. Look at verse 12 of chapter 5. At the hands of the apostles, plural, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them, the apostles, and the disciples, you could say, were with them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of Men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that even, they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick and afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Was that all Peter? No. Some people said, does Peter's shadow actually heal people? It doesn't say that. There was power coming through the apostles by the Spirit of God. And we know, at least in the case of a later passage in the book of Acts, there were, there were pieces of cloth carried from the apostle Paul to those who needed to be healed, and those people were being healed. We know that in the Gospels, someone was just touching the fringe of Jesus' garment, and as they touched the fringe of his garment, they were healed. It was faith in Jesus, not the fringe of the garment. It was the Holy Spirit who was working through, of course, Jesus, but here he's working through his apostles. The apostles are preaching, but it's not just the apostles. If we keep on going the book of Acts, we see Philip, we see Stephen, we see Luke, we see Barnabas, we see Silas, we see Timothy, we see Titus, we see Lydia, we see Priscilla, we see Aquila. There are all sorts of people who are serving Christ, who are sending forth the witness and finding their place in God's plan and purpose. It's the church that is giving witness to Christ. The apostles were there leading, but there's at least one place, turn over to chapter 8, where the apostles are absent. Acts chapter 8, Stephen has just been put to death. Look at verse 1. It says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, and on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Okay, so the apostles, I believe they had confidence to be able to stay at Jerusalem because they'd already been put in jail. And then God had gotten them out through an angel, and they were warned not to teach. But they're really, the, the, the chief priests, Sadducees, they really couldn't oppose what God was doing. And so I believe the apostles had the confidence to stay there. But look at verse 4. It says, therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip is an example of that, but it doesn't say just Philip. It says those who had been scattered. Who was scattered? Look back at verse 1 again. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, and on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. I wonder what would happen today if persecution came our direction 
and suddenly we're all scattered to all these different places, what would you find yourself doing? Would you still be preaching the gospel? Would you be proclaiming Jesus to be the Christ? Or would we do what I think we might think in our flesh and in our fearful hearts would do? We'd be hiding. I'm not saying you can't move in a different place from where the persecution is. They did it here. Paul does it in another place in the book of Acts. But even when we are displaced wherever we go, whether it's on a journey, whether God moves me from here to another place or you from here to another place, I'm still a Christian there. I don't hide my identity. I still belong to Christ. I still believe in Him. There are people there who need Christ. I love, Spurgeon has a sermon on this text in verse 4, and he calls it all at it. All at it. What if God's people, every single one of them, were at it? Preaching the gospel, proclaiming Jesus in their neighborhood, in their workplace. Please don't misunderstand me. Obviously, we have to be careful to do our work and do our job. But when we have opportunity, what if we were all at it? What if we just were energized? What if we were empowered, which we are, by the Spirit to do that, and we were doing it? What would happen? Now, we can't save people. That's not our job. I can't convert a person if somebody says, I'm one of your converts. No, I don't convert people. God converts people. Somebody came to Spurgeon one time, and he was not living the right kind of life, and he said, I'm, I'm one of your converts. And he said, you must be, because the Lord doesn't convert people and leave them in the same way of life that you're in. God is the one who's responsible to bring the progress, to bring new life, to bring salvation. We are witnesses. That's our role. That's who we are. Now, I just ask you today, is that what you're doing? Could that characterize your life? If someone walked through your life with you, would they see you being a witness? Would they see you testifying to who Jesus is by your own lips or maybe by your actions as you hand out a tract to someone? You want them to know the good news of Jesus and his salvation. Now, why am I... Why am I drawing attention to this? Well, the book of Acts certainly does, but this is, this, is who we're, this is who we are. Jesus, in his great commission, said, make disciples of all the nations. Go preach the gospel to every creature. What has happened that you have lost your witness, that you are not any longer giving testimony to who Jesus is? Have you lost the joy of your salvation? Have you lost the joy of knowing that your sins are forgiven? Have you lost your sense of the greatness and the glory of who Jesus is? As the only Lord and Savior? Too often, we are silent. Too often, fear gets the better of us. Too often, really, the world has captured our heart and we're not giving attention to what we are called to do. I lay this before you. I'm putting it before myself as well. All of us need to hear this message. Every single one of us, if we're believers in Christ, are to be witnesses. I hope as we continue through the book of Acts that we'll be challenged by the example that we'll be encouraged, that we're not alone when we witness. If the Holy Spirit came to empower them for witness, then He, the omnipotent Holy Spirit, was with them, and He will be with you too. Even when opposition comes your way, and it will, even when mistreatment comes your way, and it likely will, if you're preaching the gospel, if you're living godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. 
Jesus didn't hide that from his followers. We'd be foolish to hide that from ourselves, to forget that there really is trouble in this world if we represent Jesus Christ. If you just try to do what's right, like Abel, there'll be somebody like Cain who's opposing you. And you can just read through church history, and people have been persecuted and martyred because they've represented their Lord, the Lord Jesus, who, of course, died on a cross, rose again. If you believed on him, you could die on a cross too, but you will also, according to his promise, rise again. You have no need to fear. There's more to consider as we think about an overview of this book. We think even about the witness of the apostles. We get more in detail and we see what God is doing. But God, by his grace, if he has called you in Christ Jesus, if you belong to him, he's given you a direction in life. And it's, it's, not, it's not you pursuing your own dreams and your own purposes. It's following the footsteps of the master. It's following in obedience to him. And what is his command to us? Go, preach the gospel, preach the good news to every creature. May the Lord help us. Let's pray. Father, there may be someone even here today who has yet to believe the good news, has not yet come to an understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray in your mercy that you would impress the truth upon their heart, that Jesus Christ is the only way, salvation, that it is not, as we read in Galatians, it is not by the works of the law. It is only through faith in him that we are saved. We pray that you'd work in their heart such a way that they would call out upon your name. You've said in your word that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, as we consider the early church and what you were doing in the early church. This is not certainly human activity alone. We do need to be stirred up. We need to be reminded of our obligation, but we thank you that with every obligation that you have given to us, that you've commanded to us, we have the omnipotent Holy Spirit as our helper. And so this isn't something that we need to drum up in our own ambition, desire. We certainly need to be reminded that that's what it ought to be. But we thank you that we can trust in your Holy Spirit's help to be able to proclaim the gospel, to see people come to the knowledge of who Jesus is. Lord, we pray if we have been disobedient, if we have been silent, if we have been focused on the things of this world, if we have sin in our life and have no confidence to be able to tell others, Lord, we pray that you would change us. We pray that you'd help us to deal with our sin, whether it's confessing our failure or recognizing we need to get into a place where we're obedient to you. We ask that you'd help us to do so. We do desire, Lord, to be able to stand before your throne one day and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We know, Lord, that in this life, you will empower us to do your service. We pray that we might not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, that we might not quench the Holy Spirit of God, that we might not sin against you, Holy Spirit, but that we would yield and be filled, controlled. Give us grace, we pray, and we ask in Jesus' name.